0: We're going to go ahead and just jump in right into our sermon this morning, and we're going to do that by way of time travel, and we're going to go back in time almost 400 years. So put yourself in that headspace for a minute. The year is 1636, 1636, and a new college is founded in a new colony called the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And this college, its primary concern in being founded is this, to train up new clergymen, new pastors, to foster healthy churches in colonial America. School representatives are quoted as saying that we want to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. That's the mission of this, this burgeoning college. The college's motto would be Christo et Ecclesia, Christ for Christ and church. Embossed on the college seal would be the word veritas, or truth. Soon a mission statement is, is published that codifies the school's purpose. And it reads this, Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore, to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And, seeing the Lord only gives wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of Him. This is the mission statement of this new school. Now, around the same time, we're still in 1636, but now we've added a couple years. It's 1638 now. And around the same time, a young Puritan sets sail across the Atlantic Ocean. He's inherited considerable wealth from his family. He immigrates to this new colony, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and he learns of this new college and its mission. And in an act of faith, he bequeaths in his will half of his total estate to this new college 780 pounds. That's the equivalent of 210,000 US dollars to this new school not only that he decides to give his entire scholarly library to the school to have a nice library to start training up these these uh these clergymen in 1638 our young puritan dies of tuberculosis at the age of 30 and thus his will goes into effect And in recognition and gratitude, the young college decides to name the college after him. Maybe you've caught on by now, especially if you recognize the mission statement. Our young Puritan's name was John Harvard. Harvard was founded with the intention of being a school that trained up the thousands of Puritans who were flocking across the Atlantic Ocean to this new Massachusetts Bay Colony. And John Harvard saw the potential of such a mission, of such an institution, So much so that he willed half of everything he had to make sure that this college would be successful. Now, of course, the Harvard of 2023 is much different than the Harvard of 1636. If you read the current mission statement of the Ivy League school, you won't find anything about Christ or prayer or the foundation of knowledge or or even eternal life. Instead, you'll find phrases like the transformative power of a liberal arts and science education. Or you might read this statement. Beginning in the classroom with exposure to new ideas, new ways of understanding, and new ways of knowing, students embark on a journey of intellectual transformation through a diverse living environment where students live with people who are studying different topics, who come from different walks of life, and have evolving identities, Intellectual transformation is deepened, and conditions for social transformation are created. Now, to be sure, Harvard is prestigious, 387 years later after its founding. But the reality is is that it's not prestigious for the reasons that John Harvard and others hoped for, especially in the case of, of Mr. Harvard. One might say that the mission of Harvard has drifted. And that brings us to the, the topic at hand this morning. I'm calling this sermon Mission Drift in the Church. You know, just like Harvard University, local churches are in danger of this concept of mission drift. Now, this sermon is not a self-contained sermon. It's actually a sermon in a larger series called How to Destroy a Church, and it's the 10th sermon in this series. It's not a sermon that we hit every single week, but from time to time, we jump back into it, And the point of this sermon series is to look at potential dangers that, if not guarded against and not protected against and not even uh, aware of, uh, can lead to the destruction of a local congregation. And we believe that mission drift is one of those issues. Now, what is mission drift? Well, hopefully my introduction, talking about Harvard University, of shed some light on what exactly mission drift is and it's sort of in the name itself right mission drift is this tendency of organizations and institutions and yes even churches to depart from the original mission and purpose for which they were founded harvard is just one example of mission drift we could look at the ymca as another we could look at even Yale university which was founded to to try to curtail the drift of harvard But at the end of the day, Yale itself has drifted. Researchers who have looked at this issue of mission drift will say that it's not a question of if mission drift will happen in an organization, but really it's the natural course of every institution if it's not guarded against and if it's not fought against. Before we do that and we consider this idea of mission drift and jump into this sermon, in its entirety, let's ask God for wisdom and, and, and pray to him. Father, we want to pray to you as our brothers and sisters did hundreds of years ago. And we pray that you would help us to, to grow in our knowledge that, that in you is eternal life. We pray that you would press on us a, a sense of our purpose, um, the purpose for which the church was created. And we pray that this sermon would would... would help us to pursue this mission with a greater passion. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Our text this morning is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Very famous passage. Um, If you're using the Black Pew Bible, that's uh, on page 993. And I'm going to go ahead and turn there, if you want to turn there with me. Page 993, the Gospel of Matthew is one of four Gospels that were written to Uh, explain the, the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. They are narratives. They are historical accounts of the life of Jesus. And Matthew is the first one, at least in the order of the books. This is what the scriptures say, verse 18, Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's in this passage that is famously called the Great Commission passage that we find the great and definitive mission of the church. What is the mission of the church, right? What has Jesus, with all the authority in heaven and on earth, commissioned the church to do? And the simple answer is to make disciples, to make disciples. That's the emphasis of the command, make disciples. The church is on mission if it's striving to make disciples. And no other mission will suffice. If you're taking notes this morning, our main idea for which we'll have kind of a foundation to go forward is this, a church's aim, purpose, goal, and mission should be to glorify God in the making of disciples. I'll give you a second to take a snapshot or, or write that down. I'll say it again, a church's aim, purpose, goal, and mission, those are all synonyms really, should be to glorify God in the making of disciples. This is the mission of the church now the mission of the church the great commission has two components that we can't miss right and they're in the text itself first the great commission involves preaching and evangelism preaching and evangelism sharing the gospel with non-christians right again christ has come he's lived he's died he's resurrected he's ascended and to evangelize is to call those around us to turn from, them, from their sins and believe in that good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. And as people respond to this message, we then baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the point of baptism is that those who profess faith are aligning themselves with this triune God, this, this Trinitarian God. They're saying, hey, I'm in public and I am publicly professing that, yes, I have been brought from darkness into light. I have been crucified with Christ, and I have been raised to walk in newness of life. This is what baptism pictures. My old life has been nailed to the cross, and now I'm walking in the new life found only in Christ. So this is one aspect of the Great Commission, to evangelize, to evangelize non-Christians or unbelievers, but the Great Commission is not just a command to do that. It's, there's another part, right? What does Jesus say? Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then do what? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. If churches are going to stay true to the mission and not drift from the mission, we have to make sure that we know that the mission contains two components, evangelism and discipleship evangelism and discipleship. One author referring to this twofold mission that we're going to be talking about this morning, he expresses it this way. We want to see the gospel go out, or we want to see the gospel go out to the ends of the earth. We want to see progress that way, but we also want to see the gospel grow in someone. We want to see progress in someone, right? We believe that the gospel is what ultimately bears fruit in someone's life. Right? So we want to see the gospel go out, but we also want to see it progress within someone. And this is what the Great Commission is designed to do. Hagerstown Church, in its mission statement, in our mission statement, says this We want to be a people helping people find and follow Jesus. Find and follow Jesus. It's just a repackaging of the Great Commission. We want, to, we want first for people to find Jesus. We want people to to turn to him in faith and trust in him alone for salvation, and then we want them to follow Jesus their whole life, to walk with Christ. This is the mission of the church. It's the mission of Hagerstown Church, it should be the mission of every local church, to fulfill the Great Commission, to pursue it. Now, the question we need to answer this morning is, how does a church drift from the mission? right? This is a, a sermon in a series called How to Destroy a Church. So we want to we be educated and understand exactly how does this happen when a church drifts from the mission, drifts from uh, the Great Commission. How does mission drift destroy a church? And I would argue that a church that does not live out the Great Commission destroys itself because it's unable to replicate or reproduce itself, Think about that concept. A church that does not pursue the Great Commission is unable to replicate itself. Its longevity will cease. And that was the fear of the founders of Harvard, right? We, we read a quote from them. They dreaded the prospect of leaving churches with anemic and illiterate church leadership when the current ministers passed on, right? They wanted to perpetuate Uh, this to posterity. In other words, they wanted to replicate themselves. They they sensed the long game, and so they were uh, pursuing this in the founding of Harvard. A church that has drifted from the mission, drifted from the Great Commission, it it ends up destroying itself by cutting off its ability to reproduce. The the words of of Paul to Timothy, where he basically, paraphrasing, says to Timothy, hey, make disciples who make disciples who make disciples right? It's that constant flow of of replication and reproduction. A church that doesn't do this is dying. Now, the death is slow, right? Drift is gradual. It's not sudden. But over time, the life force of the church is reduced. And then one day, its vitality is just hanging by a thread, and then it's gone. And maybe the parishioners of the church, the members of the church, wonder what went wrong, and maybe long for the glory days when it seemed like the church had more health and and life and vitality. Tom Rainer, in his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, that's the kind of title that makes you want to read a book, right? Autopsy of a Deceased Church, he looks at 14 churches who closed their doors, in more blunt terms, died, and the reasons why this happened. And in this little book, he has a chapter called The Great Commission Becomes the Great Omission. The Great Commission Becomes the Great Omission. And this is what he says. As I looked at the deaths of 14 churches, I saw a common pattern. Obedience to the Great Commission faded, usually gradually. It's not as if one day the church was sending out dozens of members into the community and the next it suddenly stopped. Instead, the decrease in the outward focus was gradual, gradual almost imperceptible, like slow erosion. The effort to obey the Great Commission trailed off so slowly that few, if any, noticed, and those who did were largely ignored. The more vocal members usually left the church, and the comfortable members remained behind for the death watch. That's a sobering uh, evaluation and commentary from Mr. Rainier. Notice the words... Gradual, imperceptible, slowly. This is mission drift in the church. We want to answer the question, why do churches drift from the mission? I think Rainer makes an argument, yes, they do. I think our experience would also argue, yes, churches drift from the mission. But why do they do so? Why do they do so? I'm going to give you four reasons, and these should be on the screen, four reasons why churches drift from the mission. Number one, the big picture is obscured or forgotten. The big picture is obscured or forgotten. Now, you may be asking, what is the big picture? Well, we say here at Hagerstown Church that we're big picture focused, right? If you walk behind me down this hallway, you're going to see some foam boards on the wall and they and. In them hang our values, one of which is big picture focused. The big picture is that Jesus is building his church. That's the big picture. And because he's building his church, one day that church will surround the throne of God for all eternity. That's the big picture. I want you to do something maybe a little odd this morning. I want you to close your eyes. And I'm going to read a text here, and I want you to just imagine the big picture. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As you open your eyes, this is the big picture this morning. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every language will surround the throne of God because the Great Commission was fulfilled. This is the big picture. And when churches forget this, when they drift from the mission, the ultimate reality is that members of the church turn inward on themselves. The big picture becomes a tinier picture, a smaller mission, something less to attain. There's a satisfaction with maybe even a worldly vision that will eventually crumble. That's one reason why, the, why churches drift from the mission. Another reason is that the workers, the laborers, the members of the church grow weary and well-doing. Growing weary and well-doing. Now, we, we are a results-driven people, are we not? Right? We want to see results, and we also want to see them quick. Right? We want to see our efforts actually come to fruition. We don't want to be like Adoniram Judson and his wife, who served six years in Burma, Myanmar, before they even saw one convert. Like, we don't want to be like that. Right? And I don't think that this expectation to see results quickly and to see that the success of our labors is unique to modern evangelicalism, right? If you read the scriptures, you see that the Apostle Paul was concerned that the churches in Galatia and Thessalonica and Corinth also were prone to grow weary. We read in, in all three of these letters, things like this, "'Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap.'" If we do not give up. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. To the church in Corinth. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The temptation to grow weary brings with it a temptation to drift from the mission and focus on other things that might actually bring quicker success and kind of give us a satisfaction of a job well done, right? We can maybe think of things that, well, we can see results pretty quick if I, if I switch my, my agenda. Churches that have drifted from the mission have become discouraged. Discouraged because of the lack of apparent fruit. You know, maybe, maybe in the early days of the church, the, the prospect of, of building God's kingdom and, and seeing people come to Christ... And, and discipled was an amazing vision, but now it's laborious, and, and the fruit is not necessarily apparently there. It is the, the tendency of God's people to grow weary, and that's why he inspired multiple sections of scripture to exhort us and encourage us to not grow weary. Another reason why, why churches drift from the mission is what I call pragmatism, or seeker sensitivity. Pragmatism is a more subtle form of mission drift because it seems like the the mission appears to be the same, right? Uh, These kind of churches, pragmatic, overly seeker sensitive churches will do whatever it takes to, to see people come through the doors. But the reality is is that numerical growth is not the same thing as the Great Commission. Numerical growth is not the same thing as, as fulfilling the Great Commission. And we know this as we look at, at churches that are driven primarily, primarily by the, the prosperity gospel. If you look at the, the biggest churches in the, in the country, some of them are prosperity-driven churches. And we would not say that the Great Commission is necessarily being actively pursued in those churches in spite of their, their large numbers. Number four, another way that the churches drift from the mission, we'll spend some time on this one. It's what I'm calling an over or under emphasis on one part of the mission. An over or under emphasis on one aspect of the Great Commission. As we, we kind of, we saw as we laid the foundation this morning, the Great Commission is a two-fold commission, right? It involves evangelism and discipleship, right? Those two things are integral parts of the great commission we want to see progress of the gospel we want to see progress in the gospel like those things we have to be striving for the problem is is that most good churches have a habit and tendency to actually over or under emphasize one of those aspects right and when this happens mission drift is imminent Andy Davis, in his book, Revitalized, says that these two parts of the mission, right, discipleship, evangelism, evangelism, discipleship, they're absolutely intertwined. And when a church starts to depart, depart from one of them, or, God forbid, both of them, they've taken steps towards the death of the church. Now, for those of us who grew up in the church, we might we might be able to, to point to uh, the churches we grew up in, and, and perhaps uh, we are very aware that there was an over- or under-emphasis on on one of these aspects. Maybe you grew up in a church that heavily emphasized evangelism. Uh, Going door-to-door, soul-winning initiatives, altar calls, revival meetings, lots of mission trips. Uh, Evangelism was the focus. Jesus said to go and make disciples and that's what we're gonna do, right? But often the emphasis on evangelism came with a price. Discipleship seemed like a back-burner issue. You had Sunday school, of course, and Wednesday night activities for the members and the kids, but the teaching was mostly concerned with the initial salvation experience and some loosely connected Bible stories. The questions that you most heard were, hey, have you been saved, or do you know if you died today if you would go to heaven or not? Now, these churches may have had lots of stirring of the, of the, the waters of, of baptism, but Issues of holiness and gospel living and denying oneself and treasuring Christ seemed like secondary issues. Or on the flip side, maybe you grew up in a church that took discipleship very seriously. There were classes on seemingly every topic. You were taught those old things called creeds and confessions. Accountability groups were prevalent. Leadership development was of high concern. Conferences were attended and hosted, Jesus said to teach Christians to observe all that he commanded, and your church did a pretty good job at that. But engagement with nonbelievers was rare, and the engagements that were had didn't go past maybe inviting someone to church. One would say that the church ultimately seemed more focused on its own growth than those perishing around them. There was an imbalance Regardless of your experience, if you grew up in the church, churches are prone to drift to one side of the Great Commission or the other. Again, some are prone to emphasize discipleship while underemphasizing evangelism, while others focus heavily on evangelism but forget Jesus' parable of the soils and the need to disciple. No truly healthy church can pick between evangelism and discipleship. In fact, every local church is called to engage in both. These are four reasons why the mission drifts. In review, again, the big picture is not front and center. The laborers have grown weary. Pragmatism, seeker sensitivity have replaced the Great Commission. And the balance between evangelism and discipleship is off. Now, before we move on this morning, I wanna mention one last thing as it relates to mission drift, uh, specifically with uh, this concept of uh, balance, right? Balance between evangelism and discipleship. I think that every church needs to ask this question. How are our numbers growing? How are our numbers growing? There's two ways a church can grow numerically, right? Conversion and transfer. And the startling reality is that, according to a recent LifeWay research survey of over 1,000 Southern Baptist churches, only 6 to 7.5%, let's say 8%, only 8% reported growth through conversion. 8%, which means the flip side of the statistic, 92% of these over 1,000 SBC churches were growing only through transfer. Transfer growth happens when a Christian is dissatisfied with their current church, and so they're looking for a different church. They find one they like, and they transfer. Now, of course, there are good reasons to leave a church, and there are also bad reasons, and we're not specifically getting into those today, but as we, as we look at the issue of transfer growth, it's really becoming more and more a danger in churches, and the danger lies in this, that when a church is primarily growing through transfer, it can cause the church to, in a sense, relax. In a sense, stop pursuing the evangelistic portion of the Great Commission. Maybe there's a rest in the fact that the numbers are ultimately growing. And the people coming through the doors are Christians, and so we need to disciple them, right? But we see a tendency to relax on the evangelism side of the commission. The kind of church growth that's seen in the scriptures is caused by evangelism and conversion, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this kind of growth happens as God literally adds to the universal church and folks find themselves in a local body. Again, as we've seen, this kind of growth is becoming more and more uncommon in churches today, even within our our own denomination. And we need to ponder why this is the case. We need to think deeply about the need for conversion growth. A leading voice in North American Mission Board, you may hear it referred to as NAM, stresses the importance of conversion growth. He says that I believe conversion growth is a meaningful metric for church planting because it's the point of church planting. Conversion growth is proof that effective evangelism is happening, people are sharing their faith. The gospel is being proclaimed, God is granting life, and sinners are repenting. A church plant that primarily gathers existing Christians is likely never to become a church planting church. The church's growth and ability to reproduce will be stunted, and he says very poignantly, something is off in the DNA. While these may be poignant words, as we consider the state of the church, they do get at the mission of the church, right? If a church is just discipling existing Christians but not pursuing the Great Commission in, in a sense of evangelism, is really just being obedient to half of it, right? Half of the Great Commission. And how would you describe that? I would describe it as mission drift. Drifting from the mission. Now, as we move into our final section this morning, I, I want to spend some time encouraging us and and stirring us up to uh, further joyful obedience in this matter. Remember, mission drift is a naturally occurring phenomenon, right? Researchers time and time again will say that mission drift will naturally take place in every organization, every institution, every church, if it's not guarded against, and if steps are not taken to uh, push back against potential drift. The reality of it is is that Hagerstown Church is susceptible to mission drift. Just like Hagerstown Church is susceptible to the other nine issues that we've looked at in how to destroy a church. And so we need to be on guard and uh, willing to receive equipping in order to fight back against these issues uh, and fight back against mission drift. So what can we do to ensure that mission drift in Hagerstown Church does not occur? I'm going to give you seven reasons. Again, these these will be on the screen this morning. Number one, we guard against mission drift by being intentional. We guard against mission drift by being intentional. In January 2020, Pastor Josh led us through a short series called Who's Your One? Maybe some of you can remember that. It probably feels like 20 years ago, uh, given COVID and and all, all else. Uh, But it wasn't a series that that Josh came up with. It was part of a larger initiative within the Southern Baptist Convention to catalyze evangelism, uh, uh, working with unbelievers and non-Christians. And the summary of this Who's Your One uh, initiative goes like this. Imagine if every believer could answer the question, Who's Your One, with the name of a person who is far from God, a person for whom You're praying and with whom seeking to share the gospel. That's the intention behind who's your one. We believe God's people don't merely need another method for evangelism. What they need is a white hot passion to see people who are far from God experience the new life that he offers through Jesus. At times it seems the mission is simply too big for churches like ours and people like me. But while we can't do everything, we can do something. We can take responsibility for one. And because of God's power and the work of his spirit, each of our ones can add up to make a significant impact for God's kingdom. So let me ask you this morning, members, especially members of Hagerstown Church, who's your one? Who's your one? When I ask that question, who pops into your head? Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member. Are you praying for that person? Are you intentionally seeking opportunities to have gospel conversations? Are you inviting them to church? Are you in regular regular contact with them? We need to be very intentional in, in this matter. The reality is that mission drift feeds off of unintentionality, right? So let me challenge you to reach out to that person, even this week, whoever that person may be. I would probably guarantee that when I ask that question, who's your one, every single one of us has someone who pops into our head. Number two, another way that we can guard against drift, specifically in Hagerstown Church, is to disciple someone in the church and find someone to disciple you. Disciple someone in the church and find someone to disciple you. Now this can be a very daunting prospect, right? daunting prospect. But the reality of it is that this is the work of the church. This is the work of the body of Christ. It's our responsibility and calling to, to, to disciple. It's not just the work of the pastors. Consider Ephesians 4. This passage is, is often quoted from behind this pulpit. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is discipleship. This is speaking truth in love, seeking the maturity of our brothers and sisters. It's the work of ministry. Again, it's to be done by the whole body. The pastors equip the saints for the work of ministry. And again, attentionality is is key here, right? Intentionally considering, just as asking the question, who's my one, who's an unbeliever? Maybe even asking, who's your one, as someone that you want to disciple? We also need to ask the question, who's discipling me, right? Who's discipling me? Now, uh, this is the subject of Garrett Hale's little book, How Can I Find Someone to Disciple Me? Right? We actually have some copies of this book. If you want to grab one after the service, just come see me, and I'll just literally give it to you, okay? And I also would uh, promise to even read it with you if you'd pick up a copy. This is a short little book. It's part of a little series called Church Questions, and it just covers, just like it says, lots of questions that may come up in the life and uh, natural course of the church. How can I find someone to disciple me? In it, Cale says this, don't wait for a more mature believer to pursue you, pursue them. Take the first step. Even if it's intimidating, you'll be shocked to find just how willing and eager mature Christians are to disciple others. We need to realize that, you know, another one of our values is that we're all in process, right? And all of us still need discipling, Right? Now, one day, we won't when we see the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? But for now, we all need discipling. So who is discipling you? And would you consider, maybe even awkwardly, going up to someone and saying, Hey, can you disciple me? A third way in which we can guard against drift of the mission is to read the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. Acts is the story of how Christ's church was founded and then grew in the decades after Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven. I call it an epic story because it really is an epic story because it showcases the literal fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made to his disciples that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. We literally see that being fulfilled in the book of Acts. Sometimes we need to restoke the fire in our hearts, right? We've said behind this pulpit many times that the tendency of fire is to anyone go out, right? That's a tendency of fire to go out. I'm gonna offer you a challenge this week to read the entire book of Acts in one sitting. It's 28 chapters, it's a thousand and seven verses. That might sound intimidating, but uh, people will say that it takes about two hours and 15 minutes, depending on your reading speed, to read the book of Acts. That number is a familiar number, maybe to some of you, because it's kind of the length of a modern movie, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it this week, the book of Acts. Is there any other takers, any, any show of hands who will commit this week to sit down and read the book of Acts? Thank you. I see those hands. Good. Hey, even, even reach out to me and text me. If it's something that encouraged you as you read through the book of Acts, send me a, send me a message. Or message. I'd love to, uh, to be encouraged along with you uh, as we read Acts this week. Uh, a fourth way that we can guard against drift in the local church is to talk about the mission often and encourage one another. Talk about the mission and encourage one another. Researchers of mission drift often say that one of the reasons mission drifts in, a, in an organization is because the mission just wasn't talked about that often, right? Which leads folks to, in a sense, make up their own mission, right? And to find their own purpose. Again, what's the mission of Hagerstown Church? We say it again like this. We want to be a people helping people find and follow Jesus. So, ask your fellow brothers and sisters how they're doing, not in a condemning way, but in an encouraging way, in a stirring one one another along to to love and good works. Ask them what steps they're taking to help people find and follow Jesus. Share your efforts in life group or in, in discipleship groups. Ask for advice. And when you see fruit, celebrate your brothers and sisters. Encourage them to keep going. Maybe they share an awesome testimony of, of a discipleship effort that, that bore fruit. Encourage them in that. Maybe they've been pursuing a lost person for a very long time, and it seems like God is stirring in their heart. Encourage them in that to keep on and, and to press on. Spur one another along to, to love and good works. Again, number four, talk about the mission often and encourage one another in it. A fifth way that we can guard against drift is, is to pray. Maybe you've never done this, but have you ever boldly prayed something like this, God, allow me to have a gospel conversation with my neighbor today. Or maybe, Father, I know my family seemingly doesn't want anything to do with what I believe, but would you please help me this week to be salt and light as as I interact with them. Maybe these kind of prayers scare you because you're afraid that God might answer them right? But the reality of it is, is we need to pray these kinds of prayers. We need to ask God to work in our evangelistic and discipleship efforts. God answers prayer. He loves to answer the prayers of his children. And so, pray. Number six, we guard against drift as we remind ourselves of hell. It's almost a a certainty that churches who have drifted from the mission have forgotten hell or outright dismissed it as a reality. But whether we've dismissed it or we've chosen not to really think about it much, the reality of hell remains. It exists. And as we guard against the mission, I think it would behoove us as Christians to meditate on hell, to meditate on life hereafter. Dane Ortland in his little book, Is Hell Real? And I just have one copy of this, but if you want to buy one, I'll read this one with you too. Is Hell Real? He, he kind of practices what pondering hell would look like, and he calls it a salutary and beneficial thing for, church, for Christians to, to meditate on the reality of hell. He says this, most readers of this book, most hearers of this sermon, are a car ride away from a graveyard. Within a short drive of everyone reading this book as a hospital or hospice care facility to ease the discomfort of the dying. Men and women are slipping into the permanent sleep of death and dropping into hell all around us. More than likely in the next few days, within a few miles of the spot where you are sitting, someone will descend into hell. And that will be a tragedy that is utterly irreversible. St. Orland models what meditating on hell might look like. You know, it's often said that Jesus taught more on hell than heaven, and that's true. If you actually break it down, he talks a lot about hell. And why do you think he did that? And I don't know everything that the almighty son of God was thinking in his wisdom, in all of his teachings, but he obviously thought that meditating on death and hell was a wise thing to do. So much so that he shared it with his his disciples. Solomon thought the same thing. It's better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone and the living should take this to heart. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. That's upside down wisdom to us today. But it is wisdom that we desperately need healthy meditation on the hell of God's wrath will help us stay true to the mission at hand. Spurgeon famously said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Spurgeon got the mission of the church and Spurgeon had a healthy understanding of hell and it spurred him along to evangelism and discipleship. Seventh and finally, as we guard against mission drift this morning, we need to guard our own hearts. We need to guard our own hearts. Mission drift is an organizational issue, yes, but at its root, it's a heart issue. Right? Just as organizations and institutions are made up of people, the church, even more so, is made up of people. It's the body of Christ. Churches that drift from the mission do so because people drift away from the mission. We see in the scriptures a couple of examples of people who drifted from the mission. In love with the pleasures of the world, Deimos, who was a missionary worker with Paul, he deserts the work. And Paul says he went to Thessalonica. He just left. He left the mission because he was in love with the world. Maybe even more astonishingly, Mark, before he wrote his gospel account, backed out of Paul's first missionary journey. Now, we don't really know why, but perhaps it was because maybe Mark didn't count the cost of of being a disciple of Christ. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. One translation renders the Hebrew, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. What will be the course of your life? Where is your heart leading you? Will your life be a life of laying down your life for the proclamation of the gospel? Or will it be a life of pursuing something lesser? Will it be a life like Paul's who toiled and struggled with all the energy God gave him, he says, for what? That Christ would be proclaimed and that he would be able to present everyone mature in Christ. Is that the course of our life or are we satisfied with a lesser purpose? The truth of the matter is that we're all too easily satisfied. We're all too easily satisfied. We need a greater vision. We need a bigger picture. There's an eternal kingdom being built by God. The famous words only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ shall last. Do you believe that this morning? What is the course of your life? Where is your heart taking you? If you don't want to drift from the mission, you need to guard your heart because your heart will naturally want to drift from the mission. As we close this morning, you know, we've talked about a lot this morning. We've established the mission of the church is, in fact, the Great Commission. We've seen that the Great Commission involves both evangelism and discipleship. We've seen that mission drift is a real thing that can destroy churches and does. We've seen reasons why a church would drift and we've seen how we, on both a corporate and an individual level, need to guard against drift. And as we close, I want us all to remember something. And this sermon wasn't exactly an expositional sermon through Matthew 28, 18 through 20, but I want to look at the final verse Together this morning. What does Jesus say at the end of his Great Commission? What does he say? It's on the screens. Why don't we say it together? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. Anchorstown Church, as you take part in the mission of evangelizing and discipling, remember, Jesus is with you. He's with you. Now, the work will be tough. The fruit may be slow to appear. The conversations may be awkward. You may be rejected by family and friends. You may experience a family member or friend leave the faith. But, through it all, remember that Jesus is with you. Jesus experienced the difficult labor of discipleship, didn't he? He experienced the rejection and ridicule and apathy of people unwilling to accept the gospel message, unwilling to take hold of the one thing that would change their lives forever himself. Jesus knows what it feels like to be weary. He even saw one of his original handpicked disciples drift away from the mission, never to return. Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. He is Emmanuel, literally, God with us. So church, in that hope, as we hear the words of Jesus, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us therefore go and make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that you would use uh, your, your word this morning, your scriptures to, to edify and encourage us. Uh, we thank you for uh, the mission that you have given the church to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that you have commanded, Lord. And we thank you for the great hope of knowing that you are with us uh, in the midst of our efforts and the, in the midst of our trials, Lord. We pray that we would find our dependence in you, and that Hagerstown Church would not drift from the mission, but with all the energy that you work in us, that we we would be a church that both evangelizes and disciples. Lord, we thank you. We love you. we, We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.